Thank you. Thank you. And I am very glad to be here. I will confess right up front. I, I love shaking hands and I'm a hugger, but I'm fighting a nasty cold. And so if I don't shake your hand, I'm really doing that out of concern for you more than any desire to be standoffish or anything of the sort. I'm glad to be here, to be back in Wichita and to be worshiping with you this morning. Thanks for inviting me and letting me come and open God's word for you today. So I meet regularly when I'm not traveling with a group of men for a Bible study. And we were in Bible study recently and we were going through the judges talking about the different leaders of Israel that God had given to guide the people, looking at people like Gideon, looking at Deborah, who, by the way, I think is an incredible example for all of us. We sometimes think that the women in the Scriptures are treated as lesser than, and it is true that in some cultural contexts, women were not seen as important as men, but we would be wise to remember Deborah. She is the judge of Israel. She's in charge of it all. This is Old Testament Even before you see this increasing awareness and openness to the role of ministry with people like Priscilla and the New Testament and Junia and Lydia and Phoebe, they're marvelous examples of how women are used by God. It's part of why I'm so proud as a free Methodist that we ordain women as well as men, that those of you, the the ladies, the girls of the group, can be anything that God calls you to be, pastor, superintendent, even bishops. One year from now, who knows? We may have a, our first female bishop in the Free Methodist Church. We'll see. But we were studying the, the judges, and we were talking about Samson. If you've been in church for all or read your Bible, I'm going to guess that you're familiar somewhat with the story of Samson. And we were talking about Samson's birth, and the way this Bible study worked is we would just go around the table, and each person would read a verse. And we have different versions of the Scriptures that we read, but you can generally follow figure out where you are in the passage. And it came to one person, and he read his verse. And he said, he shall be a Nazi, right for God from birth. Now, I have read my Bible a lot. I can read my Bible in English. I also can read it in Greek and Latin and Spanish and French and German and a little bit in Swahili. And I am certain that I would have heard somewhere that the Bible says Samson was a Nazi if that was true. And I wasn't the only one to be taken aback by this particular reading. He shall be a Nazi, right, for God from birth. Somebody else asked him, are you sure that's what it says? Well, yeah, it's right here in Judges 13. He will be a Nazi, right, for God from birth. And someone said, can I see it? And they showed us his scriptures. And essentially, it looked a bit like this. He is going to be a Nazi, right for God from birth. And you realize, oh, no, the boy is going to be a Nazarite for God from birth. Other than the fact that right would be spelled wrong if it was meant to be a correct for God, we can see in this very simple and honest mistake that not only is it important that you read God's word, but that you read it rightly that you understand what it is God is trying to tell us. I hope when you leave today, you learn more than the fact that Samson was not a Nazi. (laughs) None of us should be. That's, That's a good lesson to take, but hopefully we can get to more. What I do want to do is look at another passage of Scripture that if you've been in church, you may have heard preached on a bazillion times. I've preached on it many, many, many times myself. And I do think there's a way to read it. Not that we've heard it wrongly, but there's another way to hear what God is saying. 
in the early years of Christendom, the followers of Jesus would meet and they would pray and they would worship and they would study, but not everyone always saw things the exact same way. Some of our sisters and brothers who lived in a region called Antioch, they would read God's word in a very literal, straightforward way. Today we might say things like, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. You know, the Bible says what the Bible says. It's not that complicated. We sometimes want to make it more than it is. And our Antiochene friends, that's kind of how they saw God's word. But their sisters and brothers who lived in Alexandria, they would say, well, there's also an allegorical way to read God's Word. Yes, there's the simple, clear meaning, but there's something a little deeper going on too. There's more than just the plain sense of the Word. We're not talking about metaphor. Nobody thinks that Jesus really is a gate. We understand he's talking about something. But when Jesus tells us about a man who had two sons, yes, there may have literally been a man with two sons, but there's also something for us to learn from this story about a prodigal father who waits and watches, about who even when we stray, we can always come home. There's the literal meaning, but there's a, there's a deeper meaning. I want to talk about a deeper meaning, and the text I want to look at today is Matthew 25. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along with me. I'm going to read through the whole passage as we work through it fairly quickly and see what I think God would have us to hear this morning. Matthew 25. I'm going to start... <coughs> excuse me, with verses 1 through 13. Jesus is talking and he says, at that time the kingdom of heaven will be like ten young bridesmaids who took their lamps and went out to meet the groom. Now five of them were wise and the other five were foolish. The foolish ones took their lamps but didn't bring oil for them. But the wise ones took their lamps and also brought containers of oil. When the groom was late in coming, they all became drowsy and went to sleep. But at midnight there was a cry, look, the groom, come out and meet him. Then all those bridesmaids got up and prepared their lamps. But the foolish bridesmaids said to the wise ones, Give us some of your oil, because our lamps have gone out. But the wise bridesmaids replied, No, because if we share with you, there won't be enough for our lamps and yours. We have a better idea. You go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were gone to buy oil, the groom came. Those who were ready went with him into the wedding. Then the door was shut. Later, the other bridesmaids came and said, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore, keep alert, because you don't know the day or the hour. Now, when we hear this preached, and indeed, as I have preached on it many times, the basic lesson is this. God might come back at any time, so be prepared. I mean, this is part of of how we practice our lives as as holiness women and men. You must be doing something because Jesus could come back at any time and you don't want to look like you're not busy. So be about God's work. Make sure you're doing what God has called you to do. Don't just sit around. Be active. There is truth in that. For indeed, the Lord could call any of us home at any moment. And we want to be found ready. This is a good thing to learn. But I think there's a deeper thing to learn there too but we'll get to that in a moment second parable jesus tells starts in verse 14 and it runs all the way down to verse 30 the kingdom of heaven is like a man who is leaving on a trip he called his servants and handed his possessions over to them to one he gave five valuable coins and to another he gave two and to another he gave one he gave to each servant according to that servant's ability then he left on the journey After the man left, the servant who had five valuable coins took them and went to work doing business with them. He gained five more. In the same way, the one who had two valuable coins gathered two more, but the servant who had received the one valuable coin 
dug a hole in the ground, and buried his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The one who had received five valuable coins came forward with five additional coins, and he said, Master, you gave me five valuable coins. Look, I've gained five more. His master replied, Excellent. You are a good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll put you in charge of much. Come, celebrate with me. The second servant also came forward and said, Master, you gave me two valuable coins. Look, I've gained two more. His master replied, Well done. You are a good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll put you in charge of much. Come, celebrate with me. Now, the one who had received one valuable coin came and said, Master, I knew that you were a hard man. You harvest grain where you haven't sown. You gather crops where you haven't spread seed. So I was afraid, and I hid my valuable coin in the ground. Here, you have what's yours. His master replied, You evil and lazy servant. You knew that I harvest grain where I haven't sown, and that I gather crops where I haven't spread seed? In that case, you should have turned my money over to the bankers, so that when I returned, you could give me what belonged to me with interest. Therefore, take from him the valuable coin and give it to the one who has ten coins. Those who have much will receive more, and they will have much more than they need. But as for those who don't have much, even the little bit they have will be taken away from them. Now take the worthless servant and throw him outside into the darkness. People there will be weeping and grinding their teeth. Notice right away that this passage doesn't talk about fairness. We should, as followers of Jesus, treat all people with equity. We should be consistent in how we live our lives. But the Bible doesn't advocate fairness. And and sadly, we know this. Some people seem to have more than others. Some people seem to, to, whatever they touch turns to gold. They were born with a silver spoon in their mouth. They just seem more physically uh, able to do things on the sports arenas of life than we can. And it doesn't seem fair. And so the message that's given to us is, of course, don't worry about other people. What can you do? Use your gifts. Use your talents. And this is true. Because every single one of us is gifted by God. Every single one of us is graced with abilities to do things that others can't do. Every single one of you is needed at Northwest because you have things that you bring that nobody else does. And you might not be able to to play the guitar as well as somebody else. Or you may not be able to understand God's truth as well as another. You may not bake as well as everybody else in the church or be as confident standing up in front, but you have gifts that are needed. And so as we read this parable, we're reminded you should do what you can with what you have. That's what God tells us to do after all, right? This is actually one of those passages that I sometimes wish that our Lord had spoken differently. Do you ever do that with the Scriptures? I mean, wish that God had said something different than he did. I'm not talking about wish he didn't say you shouldn't commit adultery. That's just, you know, you shouldn't. I'm talking about where sometimes there are parables that I think would be a little more powerful. And this is one where I think, you know, if the Lord had told the story and the one who had two talents came back and said, I went out, I did the best I could, but I only have one. I lost one. Here it is. I still think our Lord would say, well done, because we had tried. I mean, that's what we, what we preach. That's what we need to understand. It's not about success. It's about faithfulness. Do what you can with what God has given you. That's an important lesson to remember, but I think there's a deeper meaning. We'll get to that in a second. The last little parable is verses 31 to the end. 
Now when the human one comes in his majesty with all of the angels that are with him, he'll sit on his majestic throne and all the nations will be gathered in front of him. He will separate them from each other just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right side, but the goats he will put on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who will receive good things from my father, inherit the kingdom that was prepared for you before the world began. I was hungry and you gave me food to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothes to wear. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. And those who are righteous will reply to him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you as a stranger and welcome you or naked and give you clothes to wear? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Then the king will reply to them, I assure you that when you have done it for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you have done it for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Get away from me, you who will receive terrible things. Go into the unending fire that has been prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry and you didn't give me food to eat. I was thirsty and you didn't give me anything to drink. I was a stranger and you didn't welcome me. I was naked and you didn't give me clothes to wear. I was sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will reply, Lord, when? Did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and didn't do anything to help you? And he will answer, I assure you, that when you have not done it for one of the least of these, you have not done it for me. And they will go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous ones will go into eternal life. And the moral of that story we preach is you need to serve others and do things with your faith. I grew up listening to the music of the late, great Keith Green. If you know early Christian music, Keith Green was a prophet and was marvelous, and I'd highly recommend any of his, of his songs to you, even today. One of his songs was called The Sheep and the Goats, and he ends it, it's all about this parable, by saying the only difference between those who are received into heaven and those who are not is between what they did and did not do. And so we preach that you have a responsibility to live a certain way, and this is true. God doesn't call us just to believe. I, I hope you all come to believe in God if you don't already. You should believe, but I hope you also do more than just believe because even demons believe. And I'm certain we're called to live better than a demon. You're called to follow. You're called to walk in Jesus' steps. We're called to be molded into Jesus' likeness. We're called to become disciples, to become like the Master. Belief shapes our actions to be sure, and that's why what you believe matters tremendously. I drove down here this morning from McPherson, where I live, and I drive about four to five miles about over the speed limit because I have the belief that that's okay and the police won't pull me over. My belief shapes my actions. I believe that I should live a certain way that God has given certain laws and rules that we should follow. Not to restrict me, but actually to give me freedom when I live within an ordered way of life. And so it shapes how I live. We do have to recognize that our beliefs often war with our desires. I believe that I should watch what I eat. You can tell I'm not working on that too great. I travel a lot, and it's hard to eat well when you're on the road as much as I am. But I believe, knowing my family history, the amount of heart attacks my relatives have had, uh, the sort of diabetes that different people have struggled with, that I go to a cardiologist. I believe I need to watch 
what I eat, but yet I do have desires. I like cheeseburgers. I like chocolate. And often desires overwhelm my belief and my actions don't always follow what I do. We have to learn to figure this out. But you're more than beliefs. You need to put your faith into practice. Put hands and feet to those things you say. Practice what you preach. This is what this parable is about. But again, I think there's something deeper. Go back to the first parable. The bridegroom is coming and the bridesmaids are waiting and there are five foolish and five wise. I wonder, what if this story is less about the second coming of our Lord and more about how we're supposed to live following the first? What if this story is less about Jesus could return at any moment, therefore be ready, and more about what does it mean for us to be ready even right now? You are called to live a certain way, not just believe a certain thing. We're converted to Christ, not just to free Methodism or to conservatism or to abstinence. We're converted to the way of Jesus. How then do we live? Look back in that passage if you have your Bibles open. These bridesmaids, I think, like many of us, are more focused on the event than on the preparation leading to the event. They're the person who can't wait to get married. The wedding is coming, and I'm so focused on that wedding date, but I am incredibly frustrated and hate the fact that in the weeks and months leading to it, I've got to get a caterer and figure out the florist and try on my tuxedos and agree on what cake we're going to have and who are we going to invite and how long is the service going to be and what prayers are we going to have read and how many people will we have to stand with us? I mean, those of you who have been married know that leading to the wedding is not nearly as fun as the wedding itself. We can be so focused on the event, we miss the life. And I think we can be so focused on getting to heaven, which, by the way, is not the goal of Christianity. Let me say that again. The goal of the faith is not for you to get to heaven. The goal of the faith is to be with God. And wherever God is, there is heaven. It's to draw close to the side of God the Father is our goal, is to be with God, to live like God. But we can be so focused on that ends, we don't pay any attention to the means. We're called to live a certain way. And notice also why it is that these five foolish ones are not allowed in. Was it because they weren't ready? Is that what the Bible says? No. Now, I've shown up at doors before and had them shut in my face and not be allowed in. A year ago, I was in Nepal visiting some of the churches that we had been blessed to help plant. We had flown from Kathmandu to Istanbul before getting our connecting flight to come back to Chicago. And we land in Istanbul. We're a little delayed out of Nepal. We're running through the airport. We go back through security. We finally get to the gate. I see the jet and the people there at the counter say, we're sorry, the doors are closed. We can't let you on. Have you ever been in that situation before? It's incredibly frustrating. The jet's right there. Well, I'm sorry, the gate's closed. You can't get in. This is not what's happened to the bridesmaids. It says in verse 12, the reason when they say, Lord, open the door for us, he doesn't say, sorry, the gate's closed. Sorry, you're late. You should have been ready. He replies, I tell you the truth. I don't know you. I think we often don't really know God and know the Father's heart. God doesn't want us just to be ready to show up for the wedding. He wants us to live in such a way that we're excited and can't wait and we'll do anything for when the wedding comes. 
it's not just what comes at the end. It's all that comes even now, living this life we have today. Because, you know, if all that our Christian life was about was heaven, then really all you need Jesus for is to get you to heaven when you die. But I believe Jesus has a lot to say with how we live today. I believe Jesus has a lot to say for the peace and the joy that we can have now. I believe life should be lived in a way that honors God every moment, not just on my deathbed and beyond. How am I living now and how well do I know God? Look at the second parable then where we have the valuable coins and we often talk about how well do we use what God has given us. But what of the distinction and faithfulness here has less to do with how faithful each of the servants was and more to do with how well they know the heart and the character and the wisdom of the master? Are you saved by how well you do the things that God has called you to do? Are any of us saved by how good we are as stewards? Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. What if this is not about how faithful you are for the talents you're given, 5, 2, or 1, but how good the Father is in entrusting things to our care? What if it's less about how faithful you are and whether or not you know how faithful God is. The person who has five talents goes and makes five more and is congratulated. The person who has two talents goes and makes two more and is told the exact same thing. Again, notice there's no, hey, you've ended with four. You don't even have as much as the first guy started with. There's no comparison. They're both blessed equally. The third one, however, is criticized and the third one does what the third one does because they think they know the master, I knew you harvest grain where you haven't sown. You gather crops where you haven't sown seeds. This is what this third one thinks the master is like. I know God will zap you if you do that. I know God's judging me because I'm not good enough. I know I am wretched and God had to send his son to die for me because he couldn't stand the sight of me and my sin. I know that. What if that knowledge is a little wrong. I mean, the master in this story treats his people as stewards, not as servants. The master doesn't give coins that aren't his. He hasn't stolen from other places. I, in fact, think the question he asked that one is sort of ironic. So, so you know that I'm this person who steals this? That's what you think about me? How wrong could you possibly be? I mentioned that our sin was so great, God was so repulsed, he had to send Jesus to die for us. I honestly don't think that the cross is primarily a symbol of how it shows God we are good enough now because we're covered by Jesus. I think the cross shows us how depth, how deep, how wonderful, how wide the Father's love was for us that he would do anything to restore us to God. God loves you. God wants you to be in relationship with him. In fact, and I don't know, Steve, you guys may want to do this at some point. My worship leader, we would occasionally sing in Christ alone, wonderful song. But there's a verse in there, and on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. We changed that because I think it's not healthy to look at God as wrathful. We would say, and on that cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. God loves you so much that he would do anything to show you that nothing can separate us from him, not even your sins. 
nothing. What if this second parable is about learning what the Father's heart is like? God loves you and entrusts things to your care. God believes that you have gifts and abilities and you should use them. God wants you to simply follow and serve out of love. Isn't this what we teach our children? Don't obey me because you're afraid of being grounded. Do it because you love me. Do it because it's the right way to live. Isn't this how we build strong relationships? You know, I'll call my wife and say, hey, I'm in Wichita. Do you want me to swing by Sam's before I come home? It's not because I did something really bad and I need to make it up to her, although it's good to bring flowers if you need to bring flowers if you've done something wrong. I do it because I love her and I'm thinking not only for my own interests but also for the interests of others. Is there something I can do? Love is a far greater motivation than fear. And this third parable where we have the sheep and the goats. Notice a couple of things there. First of all, are individuals the ones being judged in this story? Really? When the Son of Man comes, he will sit on his throne and all the nations will be gathered and he will separate them from each other. We are responsible for what we do as individuals, but let me suggest we're also responsible for what the group we belong to does. One of my Free Methodist friends recently made a little news when she testified at a Senate hearing. And another one of my fellow superintendents was a little disturbed by that. Why are they getting involved in politics? And my counter would be, why are more of us not? You should vote. You should vote your conscience. If you don't like the way things are, then vote to change it. If you are so very glad that things are finally going the way you want, then vote that it stays the same. But we should be judged by the group that we belong to and how we act and what we do. What does Northwest do? How do we embrace? How do we welcome? How do we do things like opening our doors to homeless families so they can spend the night? And yes, it means that first thing this morning, there are a lot of people running around like chickens with their heads cut off trying to vacuum and clean and pick up and straighten things. But what is Northwest known for? The group we belong to. And if we don't like it, what are we saying or trying to do to change it? Notice also that this last passage reflects again the heart of the one who sits on the throne. It's not a checklist of things to do. It tells us what God cares about. God cares about the hungry and the thirsty and the stranger and the naked, the sick, the imprisoned. Do we? I like verse 41, and it makes me think another thought. To those on the left, he will say, get away from me, you who will receive terrible things. Maybe I'm splitting hairs here, but when he talks to the people on the right, he calls them the righteous ones. He does not call the ones on the left the unrighteous. And I think that's because it's altogether possible that the ones on the left are also women and men who pray to God and women and men who sing the songs, and women and men who come to church, and women and men who have surrendered to Jesus. There are women and men who read their Bibles. There are women and men who pray for the world, but they are women and men who are not reaching out and living their faith in a way that the heart of the Father would want us to live. They could be righteous too. They're just not particularly following God. Because notice, neither the sheep nor the goats are aware that they've done anything. When? They both say. When did we serve you? I, I'm pretty sure I would have remembered, Lord, if you had like shown up in church one day. I'm, I think we would have noticed that if you were here. 
I, I think we would have got it. When? When did I blow you off? When did I not serve you? I would, have, I would have done that. If I knew it was you, of course I would have given you my food. I would have let you cut the line. I would have gone and visited you at the hospital. When? Neither are aware because they're just living their faith. And they're recognizing the heart of the Father is that we live our faith in such a way that others see it and are drawn home. That others recognize that there's more. Because in the final analysis, there is a kingdom of the Father. And there is a place of punishment and cursing. And it comes down to whether or not I know God. I mean, that really is the key, you realize, for your salvation. If in the final analysis, I believe that if I find myself in that place of punishment and cursing, it's not because of my sins. Let me clarify that. Sin always has consequences separates me from others, certainly from God, even from who I'm supposed to be, from myself. You should not sin. Sin always has consequences, and you should not do it. However, I believe my sins were paid for on the cross of Calvary. I believe my sins are forgiven. I believe that I shouldn't blame all my problems on my sins. If I'm separated from God from eternity, it's not because I'm a sinner. Of course I'm a sinner. It's because I'm self-righteous and I haven't surrendered and accepted what Jesus did. It's because I'm too proud to admit that I need a Savior. It's because I'm not willing to say, here I am, a sinner. Lord, have mercy on me. Instead, I think I'm okay and I don't need saving. Is your life messed up? (laughs) Take a number and join the club. Are you struggling with temptations? Jesus was tempted just like you are. He just didn't yield in sin. Are there private things you have a hard time confessing? My prayer is Northwest and every one of our churches in the Great Plains Conference would be, well, what's this room sometimes called? A sanctuary, a safe place where you can be as brutally honest as you are because you're loved. Not because you're perfect, but because that's the heart of the Father who loves his children. Some of you may have children who do not live the way that you taught them to live, and it breaks your heart. But you still love them, don't you? And you would welcome them home in a second if they repented and wanted to come home. If we who are evil treat our children like that, how much more does God the Father want to be in a relationship with us? How much more would God go to any length to tell us you're welcome? How much more would God say you're beloved, you're chosen, you're mine? Just accept it. Don't try to be perfect. Just follow. Have this posture of openness. We just thank God for what he's done. We trust God for what he's doing. We'll follow God wherever God leads because we're not afraid of being condemned. Because we love and we have this assurance that we're loved. An assurance of salvation. Do you know the heart of the Father? Do you know God? In the end, that's all that will matter. Not, what did you do for me? But do I know you? And better than that, do you know me? Let me pray for us, and the worship team is going to come. They're going to lead us in a song as we prepare to go. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, as we think and as we pray and as we live and as we practice, as we consider what we believe and as that belief shapes our actions, 
Help us to pause and think what it is we ultimately believe about you. You're the judge. We have to mind every jot and tittle. Don't step out of line. Or are you a loving, heavenly parent who would do anything to be with us, would pay any price to show us your love, would forgive over and over and over and over? You're the one we have to appease? Or are you the one that cannot love us more and will not love us less? May we know you, God. And in that knowledge, may we surrender and accept what you've done for us, paying the price for our sins so that we can be free. And may we then, Lord, live free, indeed, full of grace, full of hope, full of joy, full of love. Speak to us and help us know you more as we continue to worship, as we praise your name. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.